So if you have your Bibles, please turn with me back to 1 Samuel, and we're going to be in chapter 2, and we're just going to be in the first 10 verses. 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 1 to 10, and the title of today's lesson is Thanking the Incomparable God. Thanking the Incomparable God. And so we're going to mimic what the Israelites did because many of the Israelites during this time period of Samuel, they didn't have their own Bibles. And so the only time they could easily hear God's word is for it to be read to them. And they would gather together and they would stand usually in, in bright, uh, scorching sunlight. So we get shelter. But if you can, please stand with me for those who are able. Obviously, Daryl, if you... <laughs> You can uh, sit uh, and we'll read God's word together. So 1 Samuel chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. Then Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in Yahweh. My horn is exalted in Yahweh. My mouth speaks boldly against my enemies because I am glad in your salvation. There is no one holy like Yahweh. Indeed, there is no one besides you, nor is there any rock like our God. Do not multiply speaking so very proudly. Let arrogance not come out of your mouth, for Yahweh is a God of knowledge, and with him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are shattered, but those who stumble gird on strength. Those who are full hires themselves out for bread, but those who are hungry cease to hunger. Even the barren gives birth to seven, but she who has many children languages. Yahweh puts to death and makes alive. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. Yahweh makes poor and rich. He brings low. He also exalts. He raises the poor from the dust. He exalts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with nobles to inherit a seat of glory. For the pillars of the earth are Yahweh's, and he set the world on them. He keeps the feet of his holy ones, but the wicked ones are silenced in darkness. For not by power shall a man prevail. Those who contend with Yahweh will be dismayed. Against them he will thunder in the heavens. Yahweh will render justice to the ends of the earth, and he will give strength to his king, and he will exalt the horn of his anointed. Please be seated. Well, as we alluded to last week, we learned about Hannah and her predicament and that she was bitter of soul and weeping despondently, and she prayed to God and made that unprecedented vow. O Yahweh of hosts, if you will give your maidservant a seed among men, then I will give him to Yahweh all the days of his life. And so Hannah promised to dedicate their firstborn son to lifelong separation and service to God. And God heard and he answered Hannah's prayer. Well, today we're going to take a look at a second prayer of Hannah. Now, unlike her first prayer, which was this intense appeal, the second prayer is a song of thanksgiving. And I think it's always helpful for us as Christians to look at the prayers that are in the Bible because we can learn so much 
about how to pray when we look at these prayers. Remember in, I think it was Luke chapter 11, when the disciples came to Jesus and one disciple said, teach us, Jesus, teach us, Lord, how to pray. And, and what did Jesus do? Well, he gave a model prayer, right? Some of us, we call it the Lord's Prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And I think it's striking that Hannah's prayer is recorded here in 1 Samuel chapter 2 in poetic form to be read and recited by the nation of Israel. If you look in, if you have your Bibles, usually in, in, in Samuel, my Bible, it would go all the way to the right margin. But you'll notice in Hannah, in 1 Samuel chapter 2, it's, it's in poetic form because this prayer is in Hebrew poetry. And I think there are several reasons for it. One is it, there's a beauty to poetry, to poems. But second, I think this is a prayer that was meant to be written, to be read, to be recited, perhaps even memorized. Right? Some of you kids will read poetry and maybe if there's a special poem, you might even memorize the poem in the English language. It rhymes a little, makes it easier. And so Hannah's prayer here is written for all of us, for the nation of Israel and for all of us as a model prayer. And I hope that as we look at this prayer of thanksgiving, we will learn so much, not just about how to pray, but who we're praying to. And so we're going to divide Hannah's prayer into five sections, and we're going to see that God is a personal God, verse 1. He is a holy God, verse 2. He is an all-knowing God, verse 3. He is an all-powerful God, verses 4 to 8. And he is a saving God, verse 9 and 10. Well, if you have your phones or your Bibles, let's again look at the text. 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 1, and it says, Then Hannah prayed and said, and notice what she starts off with, My heart exalts in Yahweh. My horn is exalted in Yahweh. My mouth speaks boldly. And this prayer starts, it is prompted by their family worship when they bring little Samuel back to God in Shiloh to Eli and to the, 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 temp, or the tabernacle of Israel. And so Hannah recalls now all that God has done for her, including answering her prayers with Samuel, God's personal dealings, and now Hannah begins her prayer involving all of her personal self, my heart, my horn, and my mouth. So let's even start with when Hannah says, my heart exalts in Yahweh, E-X-U-L-T. And to exalt with the U, it means to rejoice. So what Hannah is saying is that my joy is actually not ascribed to my son Samuel. That's not why I'm happy. That's not why I'm rejoicing. I am rejoicing in Yahweh. I am rejoicing in God. And we can even look at this first line. And let me ask you the question. 
What are you joyful about? What gives you joy and satisfaction? Is it things? Is it even friendship and people? Or is it God? Well, what Hannah is saying in this prayer is that my heart rejoices, exalts in God. Then what does she say next? She says, my horn is exalted with an A, exalted in Yahweh. So you can even see, this isn't just in verse one. Throughout the prayer, Hannah is saying that God exalts the Christian. Verse one, my my horn is exalted in God. If you look down in verse seven, God also exalts. Verse eight, God exalts the needy. Verse 10, he will exalt the horn of his anointed. It's God that does the exalting. And this word, exalt, with an A, E-X-A-L-T, it doesn't mean to rejoice, but it means to lift high, to lift up. It communicates the process of lifting or moving something up a bit higher. And interesting, this verb, exalt, is frequently used to with the object of a horn. Now, think with me, what is a horn? It's not like a French horn that we're, we're playing. We're, we're talking about the horn of an animal. Like, think with me, what's the difference between a cow and a bull? Like, uh, some of my family will go, will go hiking, and once in a while where we hike, we'll see a few cows. And although there are, uh, there's a little bit of trepidation that maybe the cow might chase us, honestly, I'm not that scared because I'm thinking, what can a cow do to me? Well, if this cow had horns like a bull, well, this, this, this animal becomes a whole different creature because the horns of an animal, whether it's a deer or, 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 or cattle, the horn is what gives it strength, whether it's to defend itself or to attack. So a horn is a symbol of strength, power, and pride. And so what Hannah is saying is that my horn, symbolizing my strength, is lifted up. It's God that gives me the strength. It's God that gives me triumph and victory. So even if a, if a teacher is trying to teach the Bible, it's not the strength of the individual. Any good thing that comes is coming from God. It's God's strength, God's word that reaches out to the listener. Psalm chapter 75, the psalmist writes, all the horns of the wicked I will cut off, but the horns of the righteous will be raised up, exalted. Psalm 92 verse 10, but you, that is God, have raised up my horn, exalted my horn like that of the wild ox. Or in Psalm 112 verse 9, it says that the righteous man has given freely to the needy, his righteousness stands forever, his horn will be raised or exalted in glory. So what Hannah is praying is that when I was weak, when I was empty, no children, feeling shame, ridiculed, and in need of deliverance, it is you, God, that gave me strength in victory. 
And we know, we understand this even in the New Testament. Remember the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians? He says that God's grace is sufficient for me or for you, for powers perfected in weakness. When I'm well content with weakness, with insults, distress, persecutions, and hardships, when I am weak, then I am strong. So the Apostle Paul understands that every single time he feels weak, when he faces persecution and insult at the end of his rope, that thorn in his flesh, he says that God's grace is sufficient. And in his weakness, he is strengthened, strengthened by God. So not only does uh, this Hannah says, my heart, my horn, but look here in the third line, my mouth speaks boldly against my enemies because I am glad in your salvation. And notice here, she says that my mouth speaks boldly against my enemies in the plural. So I don't think she's just isolating this prayer to say now I can like, you know, speak back at my rival Penina. But she's saying that I can speak boldly to the entire neighborhood that ridicules me. In fact, not just my enemies, but your enemies, those that don't believe that you are the one true God, I now have the boldness. My mouth can declare that you are a great God and that I can have boldness to stand up against those who are not followers of you. And because God gave Hannah personal deliverance, she can now speak boldly to unbelievers. When when Jesus healed the blind man, the man that was born blind, that blind man probably didn't have much education, was, was ridiculed. But once he was blind, even amidst all the pressures of all the Jewish leaders, what, what did the blind man say? I don't know anything except I was once blind, but now I can see. And as an uneducated man, probably in the lowest level of society, he can speak boldly to all the Jewish leaders and and teachers and say that and testify at what Jesus had done for him. So Hannah's heart rejoices in God, not anything else. Her strength comes from God, not anything else. And her mouth is emboldened by God. So let me ask all of you here in this room a few questions. First, Is God the reason and basis for your joy and satisfaction? And second, do all of us in this room understand and recognize that God is our sole source of strength? And thirdly, because of what God has done for us individually, does that give us now the boldness to be able to testify the gospel and the truth that God saves even to a world that at times is so hostile to us. Let me just make one more point about God as a personal God. I mean, think with me, we have a president here in this country, the United States, and the president, I would say, is my president because I live here in the United States. But does my president know me personally? Does Does he write a personal letter to me? Does he give me any personal gifts that's individualized to me? 
Like even for all of you in this room, uh, if I were to give a gift to each and every one of you, what I might do is like, oh, maybe there's a good book I want all of you to read. I'll order 50 copies of this book and then next week hand it out to each and every one of you and say, this is a personal gift from me, even though all 50 of you in this room might have the same book. But God is a personal God. He made each and every one of us exactly the way that he wants us. And his dealings with us is personal. Whether it's a mother carrying a child, whether it's just um, a, a bit of respite from a personal trial, God has dealt with each and every one of us personally in big ways and in little ways. And when he gives us these blessings, big and small, we need to follow Hannah's model and thank God for it. But not only thank God for it, but know that that personal dealing is a small reminder of the bigger idea of what a great God we have. So first, we see that God is a personal God, but we'll see here in the prayer, second, that God is a holy God. Verse 2. Look in the text, verse two, it says, there is no one holy like Yahweh. Indeed, there is no one besides you. Now let's pause here. Think with me, what comes to your mind when you, when you see and read the word holy? Holy. Well, I think some of us might instinctively think that holiness refers to moral purity. And that is very true. Uh, God is a holy God. God is perfectly good. He's morally pure. But moral purity is a secondary definition of the word holy. The main meaning of holy refers to some of these ideas. Commanding respect. Awesome absolutely different, singled out, consecrated, dedicated to God, or another way of thinking about holiness, unique, the opposite of common, set apart from ordinary use, or in another word, incomparable. In, in our, our kitchen, we have kitchen shears. And Kitchen shears in our household is different from regular scissors because our regular scissors in our home can be used to cut most anything. Scrap pieces of paper, you know, plastic, uh, boxes. But the kitchen shears are unique. They're not common because they are set aside for the purpose of only cutting things pertaining to food preparation. And so it's, it's not that the kitchen shears are necessarily sharper. They're not necessarily even cleaner because sometimes kitchen shears can get dirty, but they're set apart. Uh, they, they're, they're unique. Uh, they're, they're for a unique purpose. And so what Hannah is saying is that, God, you're not just a personal God. You are a holy God there is none like you. Nothing in this world compares to you. 
Psalm chapter 113, the psalmist writes, Yahweh is high above all heavens. Who is like Yahweh our God? Uh, or the, the idea is that there is none. There is none like you. And she repeats it again uh, in verse 2, right? There is no one beside you. And she goes on to say in, in that same verse, nor is there any rock like our God. Now, this word for rock is not just like a rock or a little stone that you pick up. It's not like, you know, you go to the sidewalk and you pick up a, a rock that you can hold in your hand. This rock, this word rock, typically depicts a large boulder or a majestic mountain. Like if some of you living here in California, if you've been to Yosemite and you've seen like El Capitan, that is a picture of the rock that Hannah is talking about. There is no rock like you. Deuteronomy chapter 32, uh, verse 31, Moses writes, Indeed, their rock is not like our rock. Even our enemies themselves judge this. Or in Isaiah, Isaiah says, is there any God beside me? Or is there any other rock? Same word, I know of none. Well, notice here, Hannah also says at the very end of verse two, nor is there any rock like our God. Not just my God, but our God. So this is Hannah praying a personal prayer, but he acknowledges, or she acknowledges that that God is, just, is not just my God. It's the God of all Israel. Not just the God of all Israel, but the God of the entire universe. So we are approaching a God who is holy. There is none like him. And this is a God that's not just God over me, but God over you, Lord over everything. And I think an application to this point is this. I think sometimes we approach God a bit too casually. Yes, it is true that Jesus tells us that he is our friend, our brother. But we cannot and we should not approach God like any other person. God is not creaturely. God is not common. There is only one God. He is incomparable and we need to approach him in a unique way. When the Bible, and especially in the Hebrew, repeats something, like a second time, or occasionally a third time, it's usually a, a, a repetitive or a repetition of, of importance. Right? When, when Jesus, once in a while, whatever Jesus said, everything was important. But once in a while, for something that's really important, Jesus would precede what he says with what? Truly, truly, right? Verily, verily, for sure, for sure, amen, amen. Well, in the Old Testament, there is only one attribute of God that is repeated three times in the superlative. It's not love, love, love. It's not mercy, 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 but you guys know it's what? Holy, holy, holy. So Hannah understood 
God's a personal God. God's a holy God. Let's look at a third attribute, and we see this in verse 3. God is an all-knowing God. God is an all-knowing God. So look at verse 3. Hannah pivots a little bit. Her prayer now changes into a little bit of a warning. In verse 3, Hannah says, Do not multiply speaking so very proudly. So he's kinda, she's kind of gazing her eyes down a little bit and saying, Hey, everyone, don't be so proud. Let arrogance not come from your mouth. Why? In verse 3, For Yahweh is a God of knowledge, and with him actions are weighed. So we see here that, that Hannah here is acknowledging that God is an all-knowing God. God knows everything. God sees everything. Again, I'm going to go back to Psalm chapter 139. Psalm 139 says, the psalmist says, such knowledge, your knowledge, God, is too wonderful for me. It's too high. I cannot attain to it. How precious are your thoughts to me, O God. How vast is the sum of them. And I think most of you understand this. When we, as God's people, know that God sees everything and God knows everything, it should be a source of comfort to us. But if we are God's enemy, if we are evildoers, then God's omniscience, when God sees all, it becomes terrifying, threatening. And why is that? Because Hannah says it, with God, actions are weighed. Our deeds are held accountable. A few weeks ago, I was at a jewelry store, and I was at a, a small local jewelry store, and I guess because of the crime rate has been increasing, even to get into the jewelry store, I actually have to push almost like a doorbell, because the, the, the jewelry store is locked, so I have to push a doorbell, and then they let me in, and I walk in, and this jewelry store is maybe about, oh, maybe even a tenth of the square area of what's in this fellowship hall. So it's a pretty small area. And there were diamonds and other, you know, precious jewels, uh, uh, pieces there. And as I looked in the ceiling, I noticed that there were probably, no exaggeration, 15 to 20 cameras. And when I saw that, it actually gave me some assurance. Uh, not that that would prevent, you know, an armed robber from coming into the jewelry store, but I was just thinking, you know, if I were in this jewelry store and a robbery took place, those cameras would see everything and they would know exactly what that robber, what the robber looked like and what the robber did because with all those cameras, <laughs> there are all those eyes that see. So think about it. We don't have cameras in, uh, in all of our rooms, but we have a God that sees everything, and he knows everything. And even though it might seem like there's so many people who are getting away with things, that God knows, and God sees. And so, for that, as God's children, it should give us consolation, comfort, and confidence. So God's a personal God. He's a holy God. He's an all-knowing God. Fourthly, 
He's an all-powerful God. He is an all-powerful God. And we see this in verses four to eight. So let me pause here. I had mentioned that these 10 verses are written in Hebrew poetry. And there are at least two devices of Hebrew poetry that the writer uses to help explain something to us. And the first device that we see here is in verses four to verse eight. It's the use of what is sometimes called merisms. M-E-R-I-S-M-S, merisms. And it's the idea that if the poet says that I do one thing in one extreme and the other extreme, that I can do everything. So when Hannah prays, God, you can put to death and you can make alive, that means you can do everything. If you can bring down and you can raise up, it means you can do everything. And this is not unique for 1 Samuel. In fact, uh, in the ancient Near East, there is another ancient literature piece uh, called the, um, in Babel, from Babylon called the Enuma Elish. And in this ancient writing, uh, the Babylonians write about their supreme God because uh, the Babylonians, they didn't believe in the God of Yahweh. They believed in their supreme God, Marduk. And what they write about Marduk is that Marduk is our great God. He can make cloth vanish and he can make it reappear. Therefore, Marduk can do everything. Do you remember the story of Gideon? Right? Gideon wasn't exactly sure that God was going to be able to use a few Israelites and lead them to victory. And so remember what Gideon asked God? He said, you know what, God, I think for you to prove your power to me, what I'm going to do is I'm going to put a fleece out. Remember? I'm going to put a fleece out. And what I want you to do, I'm going to go to sleep, and I want you to put dew on the fleece. Make the fleece wet, but the ground is dry. So he goes to sleep, comes back the next morning, and sure enough, God made the fleece wet and the ground dry. But that wasn't good enough for Gideon, right? So he says, oh, that's pretty good, but God, you know what? Just to make sure that you can do everything, that you're all powerful, this time I want you to keep the fleece dry and the ground all is wet. And you guys know the story, he goes to sleep the next day, God showed his power, the fleece was dry, but dew covered the rest of the ground. Puts to death, makes alive. This is a symbolism of merism. So when you and I read verse four to, to verse eight, this is a device where, where Hannah is praying that you can do it all. And not only can you do it all, God, and that you're an all-powerful God, but you have all power over everything. Look at verse four. First, Hannah says that you have power over all military. Over all military. Look at verse four. The bows of the mighty are shattered, but those who stumble gird on strength. And during this time, the archer with his bow was perhaps the most powerful technology, military power or tool, right? 
I can have a big sword. I can be big and strong. But if you're an archer, even from, uh, you know, 100 feet away or even 100 meters away, you just take your bow, let go, and, and I'm done. Right? They didn't have guns uh, back then, but you can imagine if, uh, if, if I pulled out a knife and another person had a gun, it's usually the person with a gun that wins. So what, what Hannah is saying is that, hey, the bows, not just any bow, but the bows of the mighty, all right, you, you can shatter. But those who are stumble, they can gird themselves with strength, even girding self with strength with a belt that has a sword. So, and during this time, whoever had the biggest and strongest army was the ones that are in control. So now in, you know, in our world, we have some countries that might have more money or more military power. But in these olden days, if you had the biggest army, you just go, you know, conquer everyone. And, you know, you're the strongest. You remember Alexander the Great in 300 BC, once he had the military might, he conquered the entire world in a few short years. And so what God is saying what Hannah is attributing to God is that God is all-powerful over all military powers, over all world powers. So you and I can think today, it is, it, it's tragic that these evil people are in control over not whether it's our nation or other nations. But what Hannah and what Scripture is saying is that, you know what? God is the one that's in ultimate control. Whoever is in power with their military might or their political wealth, it, it's all delegated from an all-powerful God. Well, God is power, has power over military. Look at verse 5. He also has power over provision. Verse 5, the first part, those who were full hire themselves out for bread. Those who were hungry cease to hunger. So you think you have a lot of food. You have food stored in your pantry, your emergency supply. Well, God in an instant, can take all that away. And those of you who are poor, God can, in short order, make you full. We already learned, second half of verse 5, God has power over fertility. Even the barren gives birth to seven, but she who has many children languishes. God has power over life and death, verse 6. Yahweh puts to death and makes alive. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. Like, think with me. Uh, Hannah only had a few books of the Bible during her time, but she knew from Genesis that God destroyed the world with a flood. God eradicated Sodom and Gomorrah. God struck down Judah's first son. God struck down his second son. And God can preserve and even resurrect life. The word Sheol, for, for some of the kids there, it just usually refers to a place of the dead. It's not necessarily hell, but it's the place of the dead. So when Hannah says that he brings down to Sheol, it's another way of saying that God can cause death and God can make alive, meaning to resurrect. Hannah didn't know about the story of Lazarus. Hannah didn't hear the words that Jesus uttered, I am the resurrection and the life. But she knew that God is an all-powerful God and God can do everything, including power over life and death. Verse 7, 
God has power over wealth, right? Verse seven, Yahweh makes poor and rich. He brings low, he also exalts. Now I wanna make a clarification here. For your Bibles, when you read, when it says the Lord makes poor and rich or Yahweh makes poor and rich, the, the emphasis is not that God has people who are poor, who are always poor, and God has people who are rich, who stay rich. What verse seven is saying when, 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 when we read, God or Yahweh makes poor and rich, what, what he's actually saying or what Hannah's actually saying is that you can make the rich poor and you can make the poor rich. And I think you understand how, how uh, I guess, weighty this statement is because in our society, once someone has money, it's very easy to, 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 to keep that money and even to gain more money, right? We hear stories of people who are, have wealth and then when we learn, oh, their parents were rich, so they get all these opportunities and now they're rich, that's, we, we understand that. Or we also understand that when someone comes and lives in poverty and don't have the resources, uh, so often it's the poor get poorer that they don't have influence and the opportunities. But what, what Hannah is saying is that God has the power to make the rich poor and to make the poor rich. And so she's spotlighting that God has all supreme power over wealth. And that should be a source of instruction and comfort to you and I, right? You and me. That any and everything that we have is really ultimately God's doing, not ours. It's not just because you're smart or you got education or even that you worked hard. Yes, God gives common grace through those who with earthly wisdom do those things. But ultimately our wealth and what we have is from God, which also means that if God decides to take away it's also God's doing. It wasn't because he took a nap and forgot about you and then all of a sudden bad things and calamity falls upon you. But God is in everything, including wealth. And finally in verse eight, God has the power to show mercy. Look at verse eight again. Hannah prays, he, that is God, raises the poor from the dust. He exalts the needy from the ash heap. This word ash heap, it's, some of your Bibles, it might be translated trash heap, garbage dump. And I think the King James Version, Tom might have it. I think it's translated dunghill. <laughs> and you can have a picture of what that is. Um, and so what Hannah is saying is that you have the capacity to show mercy and exalt and raise up the poor and needy out of a dunghill. Mercy is basically a blessing that is an act of divine favor, compassion, to show compassion treatment to those who are in distress. So 
when, when Hannah says that you have the capacity, you are able to raise the poor, exalt the needy from the ash heap, she's basically attributing that God has the power and the prerogative to show mercy. You see, the other aspect of mercy is that God doesn't owe us mercy. If God is obligated to be merciful, it's not mercy anymore, right? Do you remember uh, when, when uh, Moses wanted to see the face of God and, and, and God hid Moses behind the rock? He, he displays his glory, but he gives this description of himself. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show compassion. That is that I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. So the implication is this. God has dominion over everything, over military powers, food provision, fertility, life and death, money and wealth. And he has not just the power, but the prerogative to be able to show compassion and mercy to those who are weak, frail, poor, and needy. And so my question to you is understanding that, what is our response? Well, I think because we can trust that God is an all-powerful God, it, it can give us rest, right? That we, we can trust him. He, he's got everything under control. I remembered I, I was, uh, this was a long time ago, but I was on what looked like a rickety boat. <laughs> and I was in a boat, and, um, and as we were going out to sea, the winds were a lot stronger than I was anticipating. And I really thought there was some chance that our, our, our boat might capsize. And so the person in charge, I guess, you know, the, the sailor uh, said, don't worry, I've got everything under control. And I, I looked at the boat in the wind, and I was like, I'm not quite so sure, right? Because I was fearful. I was not at rest. But, but we don't have to be like that. Even though this world, this boat seems so rocky, seems like perhaps a time where even for children, when something feels like our life is over, it's capsized, but we can trust that God is an all-powerful God. You can be certain of his promises. They're true. He'll make it happen. You can be assured of your future hope. Well, let's look at a fifth quality here. God's not just a personal God, a holy God, an all-knowing God, an all-powerful God. Fifthly, he is a saving God. He is a saving God. Look at verse 9. Hannah prays, He keeps the feet of his holy ones. So let me stop there. Remember I reminded us that this prayer is written in poetic form. And so one of the devices, not the only device, because there's metaphors, similes, but one of the devices was the merisms, that is our way of seeing poetically that God can do everything. Well, here there's a second device, and it's sometimes referred to as a, a synodiki, right? Is it pronounced synodiki? <laughs> and it's the idea that 
a part of a person or a thing represents the whole. A part of a thing represents the whole. So here, when you and I read the, 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 the phrase, he keeps the feet of his holy ones, feet here, which is a synodiki, represents the entire whole. And this occurs several times in the Old Testament. Again, back in the book of Psalms, because Psalms is oftentimes looked at as a poetic book, Psalm 56, verse 13, the psalmist writes, For you have delivered my soul from death, indeed my feet from stumbling. And so feet here is representing the entire person, the entire soul, the the entire uh, personhood. So when, when Hannah says, that God keeps my feet or keeps the feet of his holy ones, what what Hannah is saying is that it's God that keeps, protects, and guards his children. Holy ones is sometimes translated faithful servants, faithful ones, godly ones, his saints. And interesting in the Hebrew, even though our English translations, I think for most of you, is his holy ones, plural, the Hebrew, it's actually a singular. But we think of it as a, what's called a collective singular. So it, it, it's, it's singular, but it refers to one single group. So you can think of it as God, my God, protects, delivers, guards his people, his nation, his covenant, his chosen. And look, look further in verse 9. Hannah says, For not by power shall a man prevail. In Zechariah chapter 4, verse 6, God told Zerubbabel, because there were some people that went back that were supposed to rebuild the temple. And so God tells Zerubbabel, you're going to face a lot of resistance. But don't worry, Zerubbabel. What does God tell him? Not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Yahweh of hosts. And so this is equally true. Whenever we need help, whenever we need personal deliverance in the little things and even in the biggest thing, the salvation of our sins, it's not by our own might or our own strength but by God's spirit. I think the most fascinating thing about this prayer is actually in verse 10. Look down in verse 10. And I'm just going to jump in the middle of verse 10. Hannah prays, Yahweh will render justice to the ends of the earth and he will give strength to, get this, his king. Now, why is this significant? Do you remember that this time is the time of the judges, where the people of Israel were wicked, they were turning away to false gods, they did not worship the one and true God like uh, Elkanah and Hannah? And I'm just going to read Judges chapter 17, verse 6. It reads, In those days there was... No king in Israel. 
Chapter 18, verse 1. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Chapter 19, verse 1 of Judges. Now it happened in the, those days when there was no king in Israel. Judges chapter 21, verse 25. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. It baffles my mind that Hannah in verse 10 could pray that he will give strength to his king. How did Hannah know? Well, there are actually hints of this, at least three little hints of the kingship that was to come in Israel in the Torah. In Genesis 49, verse 10, Jacob prophesies, the scepter shall not depart from Judah. And scepter during this time symbolizes royal authority. In Numbers chapter 24, verse 7, Moses writes, Water will flow from his bucket, and his seed will be by many waters, and his king shall be lifted up higher than Agog, and his kingdom shall be exalted. And in Deuteronomy chapter 17, Moses gives instructions of a future king. Moses writes, when you enter the land, that is Canaan, which God has given you, and you possess it and live in it, you will say, I will set a king over me like all the nations who are around me. So Hannah's prayer, Hannah's song, is actually a prophecy of the coming king, King David. Hannah did not have commentaries like you and I have access to. She most likely did not have a personal scroll of the first five books of the Bible. Somehow Hannah put herself under God's word so she would hear every detail every time the word of God was read for her in her heart to say, you know what, God? If you can deliver me and give me a son, then I can trust in you that one day you will bring a king that will bring hope to my fallen nation. But this prophecy is something even greater. Look at the last line of verse 10. Then he will exalt the horn of his anointed. The Hebrew word for anointed, I think some of you know it is, it's Messiah. God will exalt the horn of his Messiah. There will be a coming Messiah, anointed one, who will save God's people and will not come by might, will not come by power, but by God's spirit. And this could not be King David, because look back up. Hannah prays, Yahweh will render justice to the ends of the earth. And never does Yahweh render justice to the ends of the earth during the reign of King David. Look what, listen to what Isaiah says in Isaiah chapter 61. 
the spirit of Lord Yahweh is upon me. Me is referring to the promised Messiah because Yahweh has anointed me. The verb anointed is the verb form of Messiah to bring good news to the afflicted, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim release to captives and freedom to prisoners. Remember the story of the woman at the well in John chapter four. Just like Hannah, this woman at the well felt intense shame. She can only go to the well in broad midday sunlight, scorching heat. And so Jesus reveals himself to her. And the woman at the well said to Jesus, even this woman, she said, I know that Messiah, anointed one, is coming. And when he comes, he will declare all things to us. So what does Hannah do in this prayer? She is thanking God for personal deliverance, for giving her a son. And, but the, the gift of the son Samuel is a reminder, a small reminder to her that she can trust that God will give her future hope with a coming king, a coming Messiah that doesn't, that anticipates King David, but it ultimately points to the final king, the anointed one, the Messiah, King Jesus. And so what should we take out of this? Well, I think it's this. So much of our prayers is either a wish list or a simple thank you. But I think as Christians, we can follow Hannah's example that when God gives us blessings big and small, for us now, because we now know that Christ came, that blessing is a reminder of, to us, a picture to us of the greater gift, the greater blessing of our Lord Jesus Christ. So can you see now why Hannah's prayer of thanksgiving becomes an anthem of worship for the nation of Israel? This prayer is recorded, 10 full verses, not just one or two, to be read, to be recited, perhaps even memorized, and I think for us as a model of how we can pray to God. That God is a personal God to you and me, not just to the big group. He is a holy God, incomparable. He is an all-knowing God, all eyes, he sees everything, all actions are weighed, an all-powerful God, puts to death, raises the dead, and he's a saving God. He's a saving God. Let me just leave with one more note. In Luke chapter one, there is another song that is attributed to another woman. In Luke chapter one, verse 31, there's an angel named Gabriel that says to Mary, behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son and you shall name him Jesus and he will be great and will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David, 
and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and there shall be no end to his kingdom. And Mary responds with a song of praise. Some people refer to this song as the Magnificat. And Mary imitates, mimics the prayer of Hannah in 1 Samuel 2. Note the similarities. Mary says, my soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit has rejoiced in God. God is a personal God. Mary says, for the mighty one has done great things for me and holy is his name. God is a holy God. Mary says, he has looked upon the humbled state of his slaves. God is an all-knowing God. Mary says, he has brought down rulers from their thrones. He has exalted those who are humbled. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent away the rich empty-handed. Merisms. God is an all-powerful God. And she ends the song, God has given help to Israel, his servant, remembrance of his mercy, just as he spoke to our fathers, Abraham, and to his seed forever. God is a merciful and saving God. So may we follow the example of Hannah, Mary, and when we thank God, we are thanking an incomparable God. Let's pray.